Please remain standing and turn with me to Psalm 110. This will be our Old Testament reading. Our text will be from John 17. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. Now let's turn to John 17. I will read verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. You may be seated. If you know the Simmons family, you know that we like books, and we like the library, and um, one of our favorite children's authors is named Shirley Hughes. She has a little picture book called Giving. It's one of our uh, younger set's favorites, and it explores uh, many different ways that we use the word give in the English language. Uh, It talks about, I gave mom a present on her birthday, all wrapped up in pretty paper, and she gave me a big kiss. I gave Dad a very special picture that I painted at Playgroup, and he gave me a ride on his shoulders most of the way home. talks about how you can give someone a cross look or a big smile. You can give a tea party or a seat on a crowded bus. There are all these different ways that we use the word give, uh, not just for giving someone a present, an object. There are all kinds of things we give in different ways, um, different kinds of gifts, we could say. And in today's passage, I want to point out for you this morning five gifts that appear in these verses. There there are five uh, different kinds of gifts given in different ways, but they all have this in common. They all converge on the Lord Jesus. They are either gifts given to him by God the Father, or they are given by him. To us. And here they are, the five gifts. Gift number one is Christ's authority. Gift number two is Christ's people. Gift number three is Christ's life. 
Gift number four is Christ's work. And gift number five is Christ's glory. So Christ's authority, Christ's people, Christ's life, Christ's work, and Christ's glory. Let me unpack those for you. The first gift, then, is Christ's authority. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. So here's Jesus the night before his crucifixion, the night before he dies on the cross. And he's praying to God the Father. You should remember this is at the end of that last meal that he shares with his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem. He has, this night he has washed their feet. I've seen this several chapters earlier. He has served them the, the bread and wine of the Last Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, he's told them about heaven, where he's going to prepare a place for them after he ascends there. He's, he's promised to send them the Holy Spirit. And all of that leads up to this moment where in their presence, the disciples are still there, he now turns to God, the Father, and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority. You've given him authority over all flesh. Now, you may wonder about that. It says God has given him authority, and you might think, well, I thought Jesus already had authority uh, eternally because he is God. And that would be a very good question. You would be right, in a sense, if you're asking that. What we have to understand here is that, God, is that Jesus is speaking here as God incarnate, as the Messiah, as the anointed servant of the Lord, as God come in the flesh to be, we call the mediator, the, the go-between, between God and man. Jesus is the Son of God. Also, he is the son of David. And as the son of David, the man, Christ Jesus, the son of David, it is in him that all of God's promises to David come true. A few minutes ago, I read from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. See, the Lord Jesus is uh, already the authority over all things eternally because he is God. But there's another sense in which he has received authority from God as a man, as the man, in fact, the man unlike any other man, the man who is able to bring us to God, who is able to defend us perfectly against our enemies, who is able to rule over us with perfect justice and fairness and power and peace, unlike any politician or ruler that you've ever heard of. So when you think about the nativity, you think about the birth of Christ, I want to invite you again this time around to feel very keenly that important tension, that irony, the 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 wonder and the, the, of, the, of the mismatch, the mismatch between the humility of the manger scene, no room in the end, in the end, laid in the manger and so on, and the authority 
the authority of that baby who was being born. Authority over all flesh. That's what God the Father gave to the Son of David. That is the limitless power, the universal dominion of the Christ child, of the infant Jesus, who had just emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's not the only thing that God the Father gave to Jesus. He gave to Jesus also a particular group of people. That is the second gift, Christ's people. Now, you may think I'm going out of order here if you're looking closely at the text, and I sort of am, but actually the English translation is what actually changes up the order. Um, And so I'm following the kind of original text and also kind of make more sense of the flow of thought here. The Greek reads something like this, says, you have given to him authority uh, over all flesh in order that all the people that you've given to him, he may give to those people eternal life. So that's where we're going to deal with the people next. Um, This is the second gift God the Father gave to Jesus. So uh, think about this. In eternity, before God created the world, God the Father promised to give to God the Son a group of people. A people. And sometimes the Bible calls that group of people his bride. Other times it calls that group of people his body. Both of those word pictures uh, tell us something about the, the closeness, the intimacy, um, how, how extraordinarily important that relationship is to the Lord Jesus that his Father has given to him a people. and the, We have to remember that the saving work that Jesus came to do in living and dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he didn't come to do that for just anybody and everybody. He did it for his people, in particular because he loves us, because he knows us by name, because he's committed himself to us particularly, because God the Father gave us to him. There's a uh, Peanuts comic where Linus yells at somebody, I don't remember who, but uh, the punchline is, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. And uh, bringing out there, of course, how sometimes it's easy for us to love kind of humanity in general in the abstract, but then we're confronted with real people in all of their sin and meanness and neediness, uh, we can find them a lot harder to love, right? Individual people that are actually right in front of us. We have to understand that Jesus didn't just come to earth for humanity in general. He came for you. And you believe that when you, knowing what you know about yourself, that Jesus would subject himself to lying as an infant among the noise and the smell of animals, and he would take his first nap in a feeding trough for you, for us. And and then to realize that in doing that, he didn't consider you a burden. He didn't consider you a project or a chore or a task to get through. He calls us here a gift. All whom you have given him. That's how the Lord Jesus views his church. That's how he views you if you belong to him. 
So that's the second gift this morning, Christ's people given to him by his heavenly Father from all eternity and rescued and forgiven at the cost of his own blood, shed on the very next day after he prayed this prayer. Okay, now the third gift is a little bit different. Um, So the first two were given to Christ by God the Father. Uh, The third gift is a gift that Jesus gives. He's the giver of this third one, uh, but it's related to the first two. So why did God the Father give Jesus authority over all flesh? And why did he give to him this people? Well, it was for this reason. So that with that authority, he might give to those people eternal life. Eternal life. It's the third gift. I've recounted for you a number of times before something a pastor friend of mine wrote about Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 22, where, which is talking about something very similar when it says, And he, God the Father, put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And, and the quote, this is uh, Craig Troxell, goes like this, that the kingship of Christ is cosmic in scope, but churchly in priority. So what does that mean? Well, it was saying is, so, so Christ is head over all things. He has authority over all flesh, to use John's words. But how does he use that authority? What's his objective? What's the end game? It's to bless us. It's to save us. It's to turn all of that cosmic authority that he possesses over the entire universe, everything that God has made, all of that authority. Why did God the Father give Jesus all that power? It was so that he could give to his people. Give to us the ultimate gift there is, and that's the gift of eternal life. Now, what exactly Jesus means when he says eternal life um, is often misunderstood. Uh, Sometimes people hear eternal life, they just think life that keeps going on forever. Life that keeps going on forever. And it's certainly not less than that. I mean, one one of the effects of sin in the world is death, right? The end of life. When God created us, our life was not supposed to end. It was supposed to go on forever, but death entered the world because sin did. Uh, Death is the consequence. It's the wages of sin, Romans 6.23. But, as that verse goes on, but the free gift of God, know this verse, wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? It's eternal life. Life that doesn't end in death. So far, so good. It's life that goes on forever. And if Jesus stopped at the end of verse 2, Um, we might think, okay, well, that's it. That sounds nice. Life that lasts forever, that isn't cut short by death, and that would be pretty good. But but that all by itself maybe isn't so great as you might think at first. There's there's a Greek myth about a guy who um, is granted immortality by the gods. Um, But the the person who asks um, for that for him makes that wish forgets to also wish for eternal youth. And so the guy keeps on living forever, but century after century he gets older and older until he gradually shrivels up and becomes the first cricket. Um, Goofy story. But it's to illustrate that when the Bible speaks about eternal life, it's not just talking about life that just keeps going on forever. That's not necessarily good news for us. It's talking about a life of perfect blessing in a relationship with God that we were always intended for. That's why verse 3 is so very important when Jesus says, and this is eternal life. 
perk up. They want to know what eternal life is. Here it is. It's that they know you. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is eternal life. Think about that. When you think about heaven, I wonder what do you envision? What comes to your imagination? What would forever happiness look like for you? And what does that say? When you kind of reflect on what does that say about where your heart is? About what you really want, where your commitments are, what you value the most? I think when a lot of people think about heaven, they envision an everlasting retirement. Um, Maybe like a celestial golf course with a, a TV even bigger than the one they have in their living room. That's not heaven. That's not eternal life. And obviously, I'm, that's a caricature. But the point is, we often think of heaven as an endless future of doing what I want to do, of getting my fill of the luxuries and the relaxation and the comforts that I never get enough of in this life, and I always wish I could have more of them. Brothers and sisters, that is not what Christ has on offer. What he is offering is so much better than that. If only we can learn to desire it, to see it for how good and and satisfying and surpassingly wonderful it actually is to know God, to have this fellowship and communion with him, this close relationship of love and knowing and being known and to experience forever that unending and uninterruptible and indestructible certainty of his favor and his love towards us and his care and his comfort and his nearness and his beauty and his peace because of everything that Christ his son has done for us. So again, when you think about the birth of Jesus, do not forget that he was born that night so that he might grow up to lay down his life for you so that through him, you might not have to experience the forever death that you deserve, but instead so that you could know the forever life, the forever life of knowing God that he promises to everyone who trusts in him. Because that's what you were made for in the first place. That's the best thing you could ever receive from him. So that's the third gift, the gift of Christ's life. And in the process, I've already touched on the fourth gift, Christ's work. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. God the Father not only gave Christ authority, he uh, not only gave him people, he also gave him a mission. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. God the Father gave Christ a job to do. He gave him a mission to accomplish And he would not rest until that job was done, until he could say with satisfaction, even in the midst of his agony on the cross, it is finished, the work that you gave me to do. It's the fourth gift. Finally, and this is the most profound of all, we come to the fifth gift, which is Christ's glory. Christ's glory. And here we're entering into great mystery the great mystery of the relationships among the three persons of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
as Jesus recalls the way things were before the Incarnation. To understand the Incarnation, the the birth of Christ taking on human nature, to understand that rightly, um, it's it's really important to understand what what theologians call the pre-existence of Christ. He existed before that. You and I, when we're conceived, that's when our existence begins. We have immortal souls. Yes, we keep on living forever, but not eternal souls. Not eternal souls. We have no end in time. We'll go on living forever, either in heaven or hell, but, but we do have a definite beginning. That's not the case for Christ. The person of Christ did not come into being all of a sudden like you and I do when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of his mother. That, that utterly unique, one-of-a-kind God-man was an eternal person, an eternal person, God the Son, who had no beginning. What happened in the Incarnation, then, was that God the Son, the eternal God, no beginning, took to himself a human nature. He didn't stop being God. He didn't mix together uh, the human part into the divine part and kind of blend them up into mishmash. He took that human nature on, and from that point on, Christ was and is God and man, two distinct natures, yet one divine person still uh, for all time to come. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the fifth gift. It's the gift of Christ's glory. Christ is about to go to the cross. The cross is all the opposite of glory. It's the lowest point of his humiliation. But when the Father promised him authority and promised him a people, and when Christ promised in eternity to redeem that people at the price of his own blood, God the Father promised him something else too. He promised him that he would not abandon his life to the grave, that he would not let his Holy One see corruption, that he would raise him up And that in exchange for all that humiliation that he was going to suffer, God the Father was going to give to him this glory. A glory even higher than the cross was low. The name above every name. What we're reminded of here is that that glory of the resurrection of of Jesus and the enthronement of Jesus was not something brand new. It was a reflection and a confirmation in history, of what the Son of God eternally enjoys with God the Father beyond all history and eternity. So the glory that Christ received is a revelation of the glory that he has always possessed as God the Son. For all of that explanation, perhaps I can't say it better than the hymn that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see." Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Well, as we wrap here up here, I just want to reflect that if you're, if you're like me, then sometimes this time of the year can be um, a little bit repetitive, sometimes a little bit wrote where we do the same things, we fall into the same rhythms, and 
Perhaps most of all, we're just so busy, we get really distracted. Um, But of course, that's one of the reasons that the Lord calls us into corporate worship, like we're doing right now on the Lord's Day. I remember when I candidated here, uh, they gave me a document uh, explaining why corporate worship is so important at Resurrection. Uh, well, it was a document more about what resurrection is all about in general, and in particular, it explained why corporate worship is so important in this church. And it's because in it, this is um, what it said: out of the God is that in in corporate worship, God calls us out of the carnival of contemporary life and into the theater of the eternal. Out of the carnival of contemporary life and into the theater of the eternal, and that is exactly what. Lord Jesus is doing in this prayer for his disciples. It's what he was doing for his disciples then in that upper room, and it's what he's doing for us now in this moment of worship and in this moment of the preaching of the word. He is calling us out of the carnival that we've been living in of our distracted and trivial busyness and all of the distractions uh, that we've been been going through, uh, egged on and exacerbated by all of the very noisy pressures of a uh, discontented and depressed and weary world. And he is bringing us into the theater of the eternal here, pointing us to that glory that he had with his father before the manger, before the world existed, so that we might behold in this prayer that glory revealed to us the people of Christ now on the other side of the cross and the resurrection as he enjoys this glory that the Father has given him now and that he will share with us one day in eternity. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this prayer of the Lord Jesus for the way it pulls back the veil on so many rich mysteries, the depths of his relationship with you, Father, all the promises that you made to your Son. We thank you that you have given us to him. We thank you that you have given him to us. And we thank you that he has given to us that precious gift of eternal life. Our God, we ask that you would please fill us with the wonder of these things, holy reverence that they deserve. And Lord, um, we ask that you would please uh, comfort us with these truths and also spur us on to an energetic and lively love for you lived out in a whole-souled, single-minded, united heart, living in the fear of you and the love of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.